You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. War. It's fantastic. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hey, folks. It's your host, Mike White. I'm sure that by now you have heard that actor Miguel Ferrer has passed away, and it's kind of a devastating blow. Uh, Mr. Ferrer had given us a tremendous, tremendous interview for the RoboCop episode, one of the earliest episodes of the projection booth to ever go out, and he was just terrific to talk to. I was so surprised that he gave us the time and that he gave so much of it. He was really just a wonderful interview. Um, so I've been sitting on some extra uh, interview with him for the longest time. I don't know why I haven't put it out, but I suppose now is the best time to do so, so that folks can remember Miguel Ferrer as the completely hilarious, great raconteur, just wonderful guy that he was. So thank you very much, Mr. Ferrer. I'm so glad that you were on the show, and I hope that folks remember you well because you are one heck of a guy. You know, starting out as a drummer, you must have had, and you came up, so you probably were, I mean, you were influenced, I'm sure, by like John Bonham and like Buddy Miles maybe. And then, But did you ever go back and listen to like uh, the Gene Krupa stuff? Yeah, I mean, not much Krupa, but a lot of Buddy Rich. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I, you know, and, and an awful lot of other jazz guys. That that was my training, you know. I, I wanted to play drums when I was a kid, much to my father's horror. He wanted me to play piano the way he did um, because, you know, he didn't really consider a drummer a real musician unless you're playing on the level of a Buddy Rich or a Max Roach or someone like that. Um, so he said, all right, I'll let you play drums, but you must study. You have to learn to sight read. And as soon as you you know, take it less than, uh, absolutely seriously, then I'm taking the drums away and it's over. So from the age of eight till I'd say about 14 or 15, I studied very hard once a week. And, uh, as a result was, you know, pretty employable by the time I was in my teens and, and, uh, was able to play a lot of different styles that most guys my age could not, um, which is, you know, pretty much the reason that I, the, the way that I found my way into uh, the, the Bing Crosby group, I was able to play jazz and read music and able to swing a big band and do all that stuff. Um, I, I, I totally forget the beginning of your question. What did you say? Oh, I was just, I was just a leading question. I was just trying to pull from you who your influences were. Yeah, yeah, you know, oh, that's right, that's right, yeah. I mean, Buddy Rich could do the impossible. He was, and still remains, in my opinion, the greatest who ever lived, which is not to say that I didn't greatly admire um, John Bonham and uh, all those guys, and certainly Keith and, you know, great rock drummers. I love those guys, but, you know, there was no one like Buddy Rich. And Buddy Rich and uh, Gene Krupa were actually very good friends, and they had some very well-publicized uh, drum wars, which is what they called them back then. And they, someone would they, they'd play with the band, and then one would take a solo, and the other would take a solo, and the other would take a solo, and they'd try to top each other. And uh, Buddy Rich had such great respect for Gene Krupa that he never, ever, ever embarrassed him, and he never 
buried him in one of these things, which he could have done with a hand tied behind his back. But he loved Gene Krupa and loved the fact that he opened the door um, uh, to, quote-unquote, star drummers. He really legitimized drummers for the first time in a way that they hadn't uh, been previously. And uh, as a result, he, you know, just showed... uh, uh, a great deal of uh, uh, respect and um, restraint in those encounters, you know, because he just, he, he really could have embarrassed the old man, but he never did. So I'm going to go completely away from the drumming stuff. I just had one um, question I had to ask you. I think I'm one I, of the... F- I, I've gone completely away from it too, so you know. <laughs> I, I think I'm one of the few people in the United States that have seen a, a movie that you did for television called L.A. Sheriff's Homicide. Oh, yeah. And I was, I was, you don't know how hard I had to, I had to get a guy in Belgium to tape that off of their cable system to see it. I, I, I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. Well, if yeah. you uh, if if you want, I'll hook you up with a yeah. copy. <laughs> I listen. I, I if you could burn me a DVD, I'd be inter- eternally grateful because I'd love to see that. It was um, written by James Elroy, as you probably know, who is I think one of the at the time anyway was one of the greatest American writers alive, um, and it was a brilliant screenplay and just no punches pulled whatsoever. And I was, uh, really happy to be a part of that. Um, it was, the script was ordered by, uh, the head of NBC at the time. It was a guy named, Oh God, it's just so embarrassing. I can't remember his name. Anyway, between the time that, uh, uh, the script was ordered and the pilot was delivered, he had been relieved of his duties by a guy named Scott Sassa, who was uh, an Asian American. And as you recall, having seen the pilot, the victims in that particular case were Asians. And, you know, in the cop vernacular, in a very realistic fashion, they were referred to regularly as slopes and slants and japs and chinks and things like that, just the way cops talk um and scott sassa took great umbrage at uh that depiction of asian people and said there's no way in hell i'm making this thing there's not a chance i don't care who wrote it i don't care who's in it i don't care how good it is it's a racist piece of shit and i want nothing to do with it well paramount television tap danced and said, all right, listen, we've got this thing. We believe in it. What if we reshot the pilot, leaving out some of the harder edges? And Scott Sasse said, all right. And so this is the only time I've ever heard of this done. A year later, we reshot the entire pilot. It wasn't a two hour. It was a one hour. They rewrote it, recast it, changed every cast member with uh, the exception of myself and uh, shot a softer, friendlier version of it, which never made it to air. It actually had a time slot. They were going to do it, and in the 11th hour it was pulled, which is unfortunate because I think uh, Sheriff's Homicide is uh, an area of law enforcement that has been completely overlooked, and it's, uh, 
it's a very specific, unusual homicide details, unlike robbery homicide in LAPD or any other law enforcement uh, um, entity I can think of for a lot of reasons that I won't go into now because I don't want to bore your audience. But um, it was a real inside look into uh, um, a police organization that I think very few people know anything about. Right, yeah, and it's one of those things that Elroy frequently, you know, he, he usually positions the L.A. Sheriff's Office versus the LAPD, and that's always a great source of conflict. Yeah, yeah, it's true, and, it, and I think it remains so. Um, uh, I think Elroy really got to know uh, the Sheriff's Department intimately. I don't know how familiar you are with his work, but uh, in his memoir, My Dark Places, when he really got to know about the, the murder of his mother, he hired a retired sheriff's homicide investigator with his own money, and they spent a year and a half reinvestigating his mother's murder. And I think he learned everything he knows about uh, the sheriff's department and the inner, uh, in general, and in particular the inner workings of the Homicide Bureau from that experience. Yeah, isn't that, that's a great book, isn't it? It's so good. It's it's phenomenal. It's it's. Uh, I mean, I, I I just think it's one of the giants of modern American literature. I, I really do. And he confronted it with such honesty that uh, I, I I can't think of uh, too many more parallels of um, compelling reading. He. Uh, I still remember the first line from that book, and uh, and that first line was, um, "Some kids found her." Yeah, yeah. So before we leave uh, David Lynchland, can you talk a little bit about on the air? Because I feel like that was something that was so far ahead of its time as well. Did you see any of them? Yeah, I, I own them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's you know, I think it's difficult to be objective when you're a David Lynch fan because you love every single thing he puts his his mark on. Again, it was something that was so far afield from anything any ten, the television viewer had ever seen. Uh, <laughs> I think it would do great if it was on the air today versus you know twenty I, years ago maybe. Yeah, it was well ahead of its time. Just I mean to call it a parody would be. Well, you know, calling the hydrogen bomb an explosion. Um, <laughs> it was just so out there. The the hurry up twins with three legs and and the uh, the blind sound man and uh, you know, what uh, was he? Was he the sound man who was blind? Is that what it was? I think so. I think so too. But. Um, the network, there's a big network note where, so, well, you can't have a blind guy. It, it's going to alienate too much of the audience. It can't be a blind guy. So David Lynch, doing a lot of research, found some little-known uh, visual impairment. Uh, and I think it ran with a, a subtitle saying, so-and-so suffers from such-and-such, which causes things to float before his eyes, which aren't really there. 
so that wasn't the original concept. He was uh, initially meant to be a blind sound man, but it was tweaked as a network note. Yeah, it would have been better if it was a deaf sound man. I know. I know. I, believe me, something tells me that was uh, David's first impulse. Oh, sorry about that, guys. I, I cut out. Um, it, switching gears again. I mean, you've been in such a, a, an eclectic array of films, and some of my favorites, uh, believe it or not, like um, Project Elf. I actually really like that movie a lot, and um, I'm a big we- fan. Project Elf is what we refer to as a money gig. <laughs> I, 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 I turned that thing down about five times. Come on, are you serious? Act for the puppet, come on, give me a break. <clears throat> and they kept upping the salary to a point where I just said, all right, I'll, you know, I, I don't want the career to peak too soon. Let's do it. <laughs> nice how did you Mike go ahead did you have more oh yeah I, I also wanted to ask you I'm sorry to, I feel like such a fanboy when I'm just like throwing out titles and looking for funny stories um, I'm, but this one um, a little more serious I'm a big fan of The Harvest I really like that one a lot too you know I'm so happy you saw that because I'm really proud of that picture I think it was a really good picture and uh it's unfortunate what happened to it. I think the distribution company it was all lined up, went out of business at the last minute, and they had to kind of hustle it out on a secondary, you know, shunt it to a secondary company, and it never really had a chance uh, at any meaningful distribution or you know, any support whatsoever. But I'm I'm really proud of that little movie, and I, I think there were some wonderful performances and. Uh, and a good script, and a, and, a, and a terrific job from a first-time director. And I, uh, I really worked hard on it, and 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 I, I'm I'm still proud of that picture to this day. Only, uh, despite the fact that you and I are probably uh, make up the vast majority of people have seen it. <laughs> yeah, I was very lucky. I, I was working at a video store at the time, and I saw that come in, and I was like, "This sounds really good," and it it didn't disappoint. I'm glad. So, hear you say that. so going on, because it's really interesting because we can just sit here and go through your filmography and pick up really awesome, awesome work that you've done. Like, so, and I totally forget that you actually did that short film with Paul Thomas Anderson right after that. How did you, I mean, that he was really young at that when he did that. So how did you get connected with that? Oh God, I'll try to make this story as quickly as possible. I don't know if you know, but. Paul's father. Yeah, it's Goulardi. Ernie. Ernie Anderson was the guy at ABC, the voice. The love boat dad, yeah. <laughs> the love boat guy. And I sort of had a little sideline as a voiceover guy at the time. And I was going down the elevator with my voiceover agent and this man. And she was cursing under her breath, looking at her watch. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, well, I got to get this. Oh, no. Oh, no. It wasn't this this kid, this 14-year-old kid and this agent. She goes, what's, what's wrong? She goes, well, I got to get this kid to Studio City, and I'm doing Marina Del Rey for a fundraiser. I'm not going to make it. And I said, well, I live, live in Studio City. I'll take him. And he said, really? You sure you don't mind? I said, no, I don't mind at all. 
So this 14-year-old kid gets in my car, and it turns out it was Ernie Anderson's son named Paul. And I gave him a ride, and we are chatting, and we just talked about stuff. And I dropped him off at his dad's house, and uh, that was sort of the end of it. And he called me several years later. He said, I don't know if you remember me, but you gave me a ride home one time, and I'm making this little movie, and is there any way any way in the world I could convince you to give me one of your afternoons and just do this little part. It would be such a great favor. And I said, sure, you know, why not? And, uh, that's how that came about. And that's the last time I talked to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Too bad you didn't get in boogie nights, huh? <laughs> son, son of a bitch. I, I, I guess, uh, I guess I drove poorly on that ride home or something. I don't know. Did you but, drink uh, his milkshake? Um, what does that mean? <laughs> That's his, his line from There Will Be Blood. Oh, no. I, I stopped watching his movies after he didn't call me for Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> Little fucker. Yeah, I was like, yeah, th- thanks. Well, uh, that, 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 that's also when I, uh, I learned there's no such thing as a favor. Uh, <laughs> Mike, do you have another one? Yeah, well, first I've got one compliment. Um, you were my favorite part of Hot Shots Part 2. Your line about war being fantastic is whenever <laughs> whenever that preview came on, it was always like, yeah, here it comes. You know, <laughs> it was so good. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but uh, it was the best part of the whole film. So you carried that movie for me. Oh, well, thank you. You know, it's one of those... That was just one of those occasions where there was absolutely no acting involved. You know, we just went to work every day and laughed our asses off. There were some really funny guys. You know, Ryan Stiles went on to become a big deal. And Charlie Sheen has been in the news lately, was hysterically funny. Who's Charlie Sheen? Uh, He's winning. Not in Detroit. <laughs> you know we're calling from Detroit, right? What? You know we're calling from Detroit. You're calling from oh, Detroit, I, right? I, I I I didn't I didn't know you were calling from Detroit. Yeah. And, and has has his show played there? Oh, you didn't hear it. It, it tanked. Oh, yeah. And everyone walked. You got food off the stage. Yeah. Half the people walked out wanting their money back. Oh man, I can't see. I would I would love to just see what the hell he does i mean uh, i i just i i can't imagine so i guess it must not have been interesting enough because i'll tell you those that flurry of interviews that went on for about a week and a half were were riveting i don't know how you felt about them but i i couldn't get enough (laughs) <laughs> they were interesting too because you could see the progression you know it's like uh, i don't know there has to be some mental sickness there yeah you know i feel bad for the guy because he was he was just really nice to me and really funny and uh and just a great guy but yeah he seems to be uh um you know in in, in need of uh, something in his life i'm not sure what that is yeah, that's one of the reasons. I mean, we're big RoboCop fans already, but you know, with them talking about putting a statue here in yeah, the city. Yeah, what, 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 what's the feeling over there about that? Well, I, <laughs> I, I'm one of the people that says, "Why would you put a statue here when they didn't even shoot it in Detroit? You should put that's it in true. Dallas." But it's a good point. 
Yeah, we I'm waiting for the Axel Foley statue myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I listen. I, I, I see a bigger push than any and, and anyone I've seen in 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 my lifetime to sort of, you know, rejuvenate Detroit. And I hope to God it works. I mean. It's a city that could really use it, and I, I, I don't know if you guys must be aware of it. There's, I, I've never seen a, a, a PR push on behalf of a, the, the rehabilitation of a, of a city, and I, I, I hope for everyone's sake there that it, uh, it, it uh, gets some traction. It's not, yeah, it's not looking good. <laughs> because you know, I, I'm you, listen. You're far more well aware of. Uh, um, Detroit history than I am, but from what I understand, pre-67, it was a very vibrant community with, uh, you know... That is very true. Very segregated, but also yeah. very vibrant. Well, yeah, we. I, I guess we would rather not bring that part of it up, but, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the home, you know, proud home ownership was uh, a big part of life. The, the unemployment rate was very low and uh, everybody was working and seemed to be functioning and uh, I, I guess uh, 67 kind of changed that and it uh, never really covered you know, the, to my understanding no, no it didn't you guys might have a different perspective but it's just sort of what I understand no, it, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that there's a big PR push because we're not actually seeing that here in the city too much well, God, I, from 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 what I hear from television commercials with really cool soundtracks to spokespeople such as Eminem and and just word of mouth and 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 you know just from from talk radio and opinion pieces in newspapers, it seems to really be a groundswell of uh, of of goodwill towards Detroit, and and I I hope it. Uh, I, I I hope it bears fruit. Well, it's the thing is, there's just so much corruption in the in the government. That's that's basically an issue too. So a lot of still. people tend to focus. Yeah, they're constantly uncovering. They're still investigating the mayor. You know, and it's been two and a half years since he left. Yeah. So, wow. Well, they, you know, there's well, this big yeah. thing about a murder. Like they killed the stripper, and <laughs> it's a it's a it's big news. Boy, that really makes Marilyn or Marion Barry look like a Boy Scout, huh? Oh yeah, it's, yeah, really. <laughs> Yeah, and the the one well the one before the one before who was throughout the seventies Coleman Young he was just as as dirty but no one really kind of points points fingers at him so it's kind of strange. Yeah, well, but sorry, I'm I'm getting uh, I'm, we're getting into politics now, right? <laughs> yeah, we got so we got to talk about the stand because yeah, I'm a, uh, well, let, uh, let's just say that we could use OCP right now. That's that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> little OCB, yeah, you know, right? Little, little, little new Detroit wouldn't hurt anybody. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So, listen, the stand was just on television yesterday, and uh, I love the stand to death. And in particular, I love the jailhouse scene with you. And so, how did you, how did you get involved in the stand? Um, they called me up and said, uh, you know, you want to be a part of the stand and. The Stand was my favorite Stephen King novel, and still is. I just thought it was, you know, just sweeping in scope and just had incredible themes and, uh, you know, just an amazing uh, 
I always think that you you felt like you knew all the characters when you were done with it. Yeah, I mean, it was a a real moral, um, uh, you know, metaphor. I mean, it was just, uh, I I, I just think it's probably his greatest work. Um, So I went in and met, and then I found out that he had written the script. uh, And then I really got excited because I, I had known that, they'd try to develop it as a feature film for a while, but there was too much story and they couldn't figure out what to leave out. It was just too, uh, just too much going on for it to really serve the piece. And then when I heard it was going to be an eight hour miniseries actually adapted by Stephen King, that's when I really got excited. And I went in and campaigned, uh, you know, just, without embarrassment um, to play uh, Randall Flagg. I really, really wanted that part. And they said no. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was just thinking to myself, you would have been perfect for that. I don't understand why you got Lloyd, because... Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, but um, they said, actually, we're out to this guy named Jamie Sheridan, but uh, would you like to play, you know, this other guy? And I said, look, the answer is yes. I'd love to do that, but... I would, you know, I, I, you're not going to be able to print it, but I said I would blow you to play Randall Flagg. It's actually, <laughs> I actually said that in the meeting in front of a bunch of executives, and I'm not sure how it went over, but that's what I said. And I said, well, we're we're out to this guy, Jamie Sheridan, and, and we're not sure if he's going to take it, and if he doesn't take it, then, uh, you know, then we'll give you some real serious consideration. And I knew Jamie um, for some time. We'd worked on a, a short-lived TV series together called Shannon's Deal. And uh, I went home and called up Jamie, and I said, so, you know, you're going to do this thing, right? And he said, I don't know if I'm going to do it. He said, you know, the, the money's not good, and I just don't get it. I don't know. It's sci-fi, and... <clears throat> I'm not a Stephen King fan. And I said, you know what? I, I said, I, I, part of me wishes you wouldn't take it because then I'd have a real shot at it. But if you don't take it, I'm going to come over and kick your ass because it would be the stupidest thing you'd ever done in your life. And he said, really? I said, read the book. Just, just, just read the book. And obviously he wound up taking it and he did a fantastic job. Um, so you sabotaged that, yourself, basically. <laughs> say again? You sabotaged yourself. Yeah, it's not the first time I've done that. I've been married four times as well. <laughs> so. What can I tell you? But, um, but yeah, that, 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 that was, uh, that's one I really wanted to do, but I was, I was happy to be a part of it. And, and I think, uh, you know, my little bit as Lloyd came out all right. So yeah, yeah, that's great. And I and, and I and I really think it was a overall a really good piece. I, I thought it was a terrific miniseries. Yeah, it's really interesting because like you either a lot of people I know either love it or you hate it. So uh, it's really interesting that it's still got popularity after all these years too. It's like really yeah. I, I I just I just don't know how you hate it with such a great cast and just so beautifully executed. That was the first time director McGarris. And he took on that monumental task. We shot for a hundred days, 
and he was never ruffled. He never lost his temper. He never lost his cool. And he turned in a, a, a beautiful piece of work, I think. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And look how big he's become now, too, you know? Yep. Makes a talented, smart guy. So on your filmography, there's this listing from 2007, which says video short RoboCop Villains of Old Detroit. Do you know what is this and like why is we why haven't we seen it <laughs> being RoboCop fans? I, I that that's a complete fiction. I have no idea what that is. What does it say? RoboCop what? It says RoboCop Villains of Old Detroit, 2007, directed by Laurel Parker and Aaron Vanek. Short oh, film. Well, but look, look, if it ever was made, I I was not asked to be a part of it. Maybe it was like an extra feature on a DVD or something. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, what I'm thinking. 2007. Yeah, yeah, because it's you, Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, and Ray Wise in it. I might have talked to somebody about something like that. I don't know. I, I have no memory of that whatsoever. And believe me, there was no, there was no acting involved. I, I, I might have, uh, I might have spoken to somebody on camera about it, but that's sitting in a chair telling stories like I am with you. But. Uh, I, I, it, it, it's, it certainly is nothing, uh, anything near the way they make it sound. Gotcha. So, I'm a, I got, I just got a few more freaks. I know we're, we're going a while here. So, um, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I know Mike is a huge fan of Crossing Jordan. So, how did you, you know, how did you get involved with the show? And I noticed that you also direct an episode. Or two. Yeah, I, had, I actually directed about six of them. I think I can't remember exactly, but. Um, you know, just uh, same old thing. It was just um, I was sent the uh, the script to the pilot, and I really responded to it. I thought it was um, now you get all kinds of stuff in the morgue, carving up dead bodies. But back then, there was yeah, it was like the first know, CSI sort of examined the world of forensic pathology, but they weren't uh, from you know medical examiner's point of view. So it was. Uh, Kind of a a dark take on the police procedural that you know one had not seen before, and that was interesting to me. And in the pilot, the character was really in the midst of a uh, of a complete nervous breakdown, and um, I thought that would be interesting to play. And originally, uh, the series was intended to be somewhat mystical and. Um, just with with curious miracles occurring here and there and inexplicable uh, uh, events and, and, and you know uh, interspersed with this sort of uh, dark backdrop um, that that really elevated the whole piece is sort of a um, my vocabulary is leaving me too. Um, just a juxtaposition in tone. Uh, and I think it completely confused the network. I, I think they said, well, why does that there was, why does this guy, why does this happen? Why does, you know, why is this a story of redemption? I don't understand when it's really a morgue and it's a crime and, so that part of the series was 
largely changed from the pilot and completely omitted from the series. Um, they wanted it to be more like CSI. They wanted to really focus on the case and nothing but the case. Uh, and then uh, the creators will said, all right, well, then let's focus not only on the case, because that's boring and it's been done to death, Let's focus on the personal relationships within the morgue and life within the morgue and what that's really like and what you get to take home in, in your head every night after you work in a morgue and why, for some people, uh, it's truly a chosen profession. Why do you go to medical school and choose to work with dead people only? Let's explain and examine all those aspects. And, of course, that was shot down by the network. They said, we don't want to see any... Uh, uh, interpersonal story arcs. We want every episode to be a standalone. We don't want to know what happens with these people. You know, we don't care about their personalities or how they contrast or interact or uh, attract or repel, anything like that. Take all that out. Just stick to the case. And then Grey's Anatomy became a hit, and that was you know, very much in uh, a story about people. So then we got the note, well, we'd like to have it more a story about people. <laughs> you know, just it's the world of network television. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, listen, we ran six years, which is a pretty good, uh, pretty good run for TV these days. And again, a bunch of nice people. And so it was uh, overall a great experience, but it would have been interesting to see where the series had gone um, had Tim Kring been a, allowed to express his initial vision. Gotcha. And so how was it like for you stepping behind the camera? I mean, do you have, um, you know, doing that, does that, you know, kind of get you excited about that? Is there a possible film from you coming down the road? Yeah. You know, I, I, I was very comfortable. I, I wasn't worried about it at all. I directed a ton of theater and I, worked with some of the best directors who'd ever lived, you know, from Paul Verhoeven to David Lynch to, you know, Tony Scott to John Badham to uh, William Friedkin. It's a long list that I'm leaving out a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I was very anxious to steal from every single one of them. Um, so I, I, I approached it with absolutely zero trepidation and great enthusiasm and loved every minute of it. It was funny. Um, originally they said, yeah, we're going to let you direct, but we we have to write a script that you don't appear in. I said, why? I said, well, you can't direct yourself. And I said, what the hell do you think I've been doing for the last three years? All uh, right, right. You know, you guys think you've been directing me? <laughs> You're absolutely wrong. And I said, and also, there have been a few notable exceptions to that, uh, to uh, to your uh, misconception, um, you know. And and so, eventually, they began to believe me and trust me, and allowed me to appear in more and more of uh, the episodes which I directed, and and that was really the most fun. Gotcha. So a couple, a couple of quick questions, uh, going in reverse a little bit. So, you know, basically growing up in the entertainment business family, you know, 
what what are you what are you like as a little kid? What was I like as a little kid? Right. What do you like growing up? Like what do, you know? What do you? I mean, do you start off as a youngster? Uh, I want to be an actor when I grow up. Do you have, or you want to be like a fireman? You know, like how do you start? No, you know, I, I, to tell you the truth, I was really, really attracted by the music. Um, um, I loved going to recording sessions with my mother. I loved music in general. I, I, I think I just adored music from the day I was born. It was really uh, my first sort of creative obsession. Um, but in terms of, you know, people say, oh boy, what was it like growing up with famous parents? And to tell you the truth, I had absolutely no sense of that whatsoever. You know, my parents had unusual jobs, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't have a sense of uh, the notion that they were special or famous, or um, you know uh, anything out of the ordinary. They went to work and they had jobs that they cared about, and they came home and had dinner and played with their kids. And um, any great talent in my parents <laughs> until I was well into my teens. I mean, they said, "Oh, your mother's the greatest singer." She's. A, I was like, "Really? She is." Okay, all right, if you say so. And I really wasn't aware of uh, how truly gifted she was and how skilled she was at putting over a song until, I'd say, my mid to late teens. And I said, oh, boy, she really is pretty good, you know. And uh, I, I, I have to say, to a lesser, lesser degree, the same was true of my dad. It was easier to recognize in my dad because he would go away and become this person who was so different from the guy that I knew at home. And I recognized that as, uh, you know, a particular particular skill. Um, uh, That to me was like, okay, that, that, that looks like it's hard to do. Be somebody different and then come home and, 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 and be dad. So I think I sort of appreciated uh, my dad's uh, work before I did my mother's. Gotcha. She just she just sort of got up there and sang, which is what she did at home. And what's so special about that? Right, right. It's very normal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just what I grew up with. Right. So you know, with your dad's career and and you following the path, is there something that you take from your dad? Like, do you learn something from your dad that's, that's helped you throughout the course of your career? Yeah. He had a real serious work ethic. Um, and he took every job big and small, incredibly seriously. Uh, and he treated people well. He never thought of himself as above anyone or more important than anyone. And he, uh, approached his work with great seriousness and uh, great great sense of humor. I know it sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it really isn't. Um, and considered himself enormously fortunate to have the success that he did. And that is what he taught me by example. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit, sorry, just uh, 
having a microphone issue. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the stuff that you're working on now? It looks like you've got a couple things in the hopper, um, like one that looks really kind of up my alley called Faraway Eyes. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know how that's going to turn out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really don't. Uh, I think there were some good moments and I'm just not too sure, but you know what? I've guessed wrong so many times. I've stopped guessing. It might be good. It might be less than good. I'm not so sure. All I can tell you is my best memory of it is Hong Kong. I, it was my first trip to Hong Kong and I just fell in love with the city and had a great time. And I had a great time at work too. It was a really nice cast. I, I just, I just don't know how the picture's going to turn out. There's another one I did um, shortly thereafter called The Courier, which I think is going to be a pretty good movie. And then, well, I haven't. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. I I was going to say, I haven't seen Hard Road to Hell yet. I know that's out on uh, video, so I just added it to my queue. So I'm curious to see that one as well. Hard Ride to Hell. Hard Ride to Hell. Oh, God. (laughs) Fucking. That good, huh? Just. Oh, just please, just erase it from your queue. Horrible. <laughs> Beyond horrible. That was the quintessential money gig. The worst movie I've ever been a part of. And again, I, I was talking about money gigs. You look up money gig, that movie is right there. Yeah, it was. It, I, I don't mind saying. It's nice. Oh, it's a horrible, horrible, dreadful movie, and I really wish you wouldn't see it. Can we, can your, we quote you it, on that? <laughs> your, 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 your opinion of me will change, although I defy any actor alive to say those lines and make them any better than I did. <laughs> and uh, it was just... Uh, it, 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 was, it was just carnage every day. It was just awful. So yeah, so uh, I, I yeah, really probably the worst thing I've ever done. And again, I did my best. I really did. I didn't walk in there saying I'm going to do a shitty job because this is a terrible script. I really, really needed the money. I've got kids in boarding school and one in college and ex-wives with their hands out, and that came at a time where the money really would have come in handy. And I said yes without really giving the script a good long look. And I can honestly say that I regret it. Uh, <laughs> and I don't care who hears me say that. Nice. So do you look at yourself on IMDb every now and again? Never. No, because there's a list on here that uh, someone put up called the uh, the greatest jerks list, which is actors that play the greatest jerks in film. Yeah. And you're on here, and you are number 16 out of 20. So <laughs> what do you do? What do you have to do to get to number one is my question for you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know. I have no idea. You know, there's something, and I don't know what it is. It's nothing I do consciously, but it seems that I, I, I really have no idea what it is, but I've really played some pretty despicable people, but... Strangely enough, they're despicable people that the audience likes, and I don't know why that is. I really don't. You know, people would come up to me on the street or in a bar or in a restaurant and just say, 
God, you were such an asshole. I would love to have a beer with you. <laughs> you know, it, it, they, 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 they disliked me in a very benevolent fashion. And I don't know why. Again, it's nothing that I did consciously. Just, uh, I guess I'm grateful to that, uh, uh, innate thing that just, that, 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 uh, uh comes across and I, I have no idea what it is. Nice. I think that's, I think that's all we have for you. Mike, do you have anything else? No, that's about it. Otherwise I'll just keep gushing about, you know, Mr. Ferrar's uh, former role. Please. So I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> so, so before we uh, let you go, can we get you to record a show ID for us? Sure, man. All right. So basically it's just, uh, you say your name and then you say, uh, you're in the projection booth with Mike and Justin. Okay. I'll give you a few of them. Ready? Ready? Yep. yep. This is Miguel Ferrer, and you are in the projection booth with Mike and Justin. Here's another one. I'm Miguel Ferrer, and you're in the projection booth with Mike and Justin. Enjoy yourselves. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. All right, man. Good talking to you guys. I I, I can't believe uh, the level of homework. It's uh, <laughs> uh, I'm probably the most I've seen ever. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, we didn't talk about Mr. Magoo, but if yeah, we leave that out. One of these oh, days. My. Oh, yeah, there's <laughs> funny stories about that one, too. I'll, I'll, I'll... <laughs> Save those for another day. Yeah. No, they're, they're actually pretty funny. Stanley Tong directed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, guy from China. and uh, Yeah, Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah, exactly. You're very you know connected to, uh, um, what's the guy's name? Jackie Chan. Thank you, Jackie Chan. I told you my mind is gone, but I think it was his first American picture, and and he would we'd do a take, and he would call me over the monitor, and they'd replay it, and he'd say, "Okay, now here, that's very good acting, right there. That's good acting, and now it's bad. It's very bad. It gets bad acting here. Very bad. Now it gets good again. It's good. It's good. So let's do again, but take out bad acting, okay?" <laughs> and so he did that a lot and it reduced a lot of the women to tears. I just thought it was really funny, but, um, that was Mr. Magoo. Yeah. You know, awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> there, nice. there, there was another time where, um, I can't remember the name of the actress and it wasn't Kelly Lynch, but not one of the other actresses, he dragged her into the makeup trailer and said to the makeup artist, he pointed to some lines on her forehead. He said, see those lines? Make them go away. They're very <laughs> ugly. Make those lines go away. She make her look bad. Those lines make her look very bad. And so the actress started crying and ran to her trailer. It was... <laughs> a big mess. Producer had to come in and say, listen, English isn't his first language. That's not what he meant. Uh, But Stanley is a trip, man. (laughs) Nothing like a good stereotype (laughs) on a Monday night. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my Mr. Magoo story. (laughs) And uh, I'll finally let you go. I'm I'm, I'm keeping you on longer than you want me. So uh, so I'll, 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 I'll talk to you guys in the future, I hope. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And I'll, Again, I'll, get a, I'll get a hold of uh, 
the the lady who helped set this up, and I'll uh, get your address so I can send you that L.A. Sheriff's homicide. You know what, man? That would be so cool, and I would really appreciate it. Thank you a lot. Yeah, sure. No problem. All right, guys. You take care. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Anything we should be working on? Yeah. You might practice walking without dragging your knuckles on the floor. Albert, let's talk about knuckles. For the last time, I knocked you down. I felt bad about it. The next time is going to be a real pleasure. You listen to me. While I will admit to a certain cynicism, the fact is that I'm a naysayer and hatchet man in the fight against violence. I pride myself in taking a punch, and I'll gladly take another because I choose to live my life in the company of Gandhi and King. My concerns are global. I reject absolutely revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman. Albert's path is a strange and difficult one. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.